0: a number of life cycle assessments on our farm uh, with ourselves and with some other companies that I can tell you about in a bit in a few minutes if you want, and how land-based fish farming, in particular zero-waste land-based fish farming, can reduce its impact uh, not only just on the oceans, but on land as well.
1: Welcome to RAS Talk, the podcast on recirculating aquaculture systems and sustainable food production brought to you by Rastech Magazine, the premier publication for recirculating aquaculture systems professionals. This episode is sponsored by Oxyguard International, Secure, Grow, Evolve. Improve your production with tailored and targeted technology. Hello again listeners. My name is Jean Coden and I am the editor of Hatchery International and Rastech Magazine. And back again with me is Brian Vinci, Director of the Freshwater Institute. Welcome, Brian.
2: Good to talk with you, Gene. You're back from Aquanor, Norway. How did that go for you?
1: Yeah, it was my first time in Aquanor and first time in Norway. and it was it was truly overwhelming. I have to say, um, I don't know how many aquanors you've been to, Brian, but it was just the biggest show that I've ever seen.
2: There's so many vendors and so many people to talk to. and then there's the technical talks on top of all that. So what was your what was the thing that uh, impacted you the most?
1: I think my biggest takeaway with Aquanor is that it's 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 such a big show and a lot of people are coming in there with such an intention to, you know, share ideas, but also learn about how they can grow their own industry. Like I met so many people, so many delegation groups from, you know, Scotland and New Zealand and even here in Canada, there were some people from Atlantic Canada that had a delegation wanted to learn about Norway industry and how they could kind of bring those lessons to their own industry. Norway
2: has been a model for, you know, developing aquaculture using their natural uh, capital. You know, w- when I travel to Norway, it, it always shocks me um, how uh, how well aquaculture is 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 put up in conversation and and mm-hmm. uh, even in just advertising. And you're like. Oh my gosh! There's an aquaculture billboard that you just don't see that in the United States, you know. So yeah. I, I I think that you know they really have done an amazing job, uh, you know, building an industry, promoting the industry, uh, continuing its its development, and in in Aquanour, you know, is a, is a reflection of that. This huge show that uh, that you just came from that that had so much and so many delegations. Um, how was the food?
1: The food was great. Um, Surprisingly, Trondheim has a lot of Asian food places, which I I was surprised by. (laughs) But the seafood was so good. Um, The sushi was very fresh. It, It was amazing. And Actually, relating to this particular episode, one thing that I found, one recurring theme that I found in Aquanor in our conversations there is climate change and this sense of urgency for um, solving the problems that are before the industry as climate change starts to accelerate now. Um, and this episode is going that sustainability is the theme and we are talking to Ah, uh, sustainable Blue, who is a company uh, based in the Maritimes in Canada, Atlantic Canada again. and um they are a zero charge Ras project, and they have been doing this uh, like the our guest mentions for fifteen years now, and they're looking to expand and he answered all all of our questions in terms of the curiosities of what makes this company tick what do you What did you think, Brian?
2: Yeah, I mean, sustainable blue has been around uh, for quite a while, one of the first movers in the land-based. Uh, RAS Space. And and David talks about, you know, they're initially starting with uh, Branzino and then uh, moving Mm -hmm. on. I think they actually grew Arctic char there for a while and then on to Atlantic salmon. And and, uh, as as our listeners will hear, you know, the company has very aspirational uh, objectives and goals. And it was uh, a pleasure to hear David uh, talk about uh, so much, um, uh, including some of their um, potential movements in Washington State.
1: Yeah. Well, with that, I hope you enjoy the RAS Talk podcast with David Roberts. Hi there, David. Thank you so much for taking some time with us uh, to talk about Sustainable Blue. I guess first question off the bat, how would you describe your role as Chief Sustainability Officer?
0: Uh, First, let me just say thank you for the invitation to come on your show. Uh, I've been Trying to catch up on the previous podcasts, and I really enjoyed the work that you and Brian are are bringing to the public in in with respect to RAS. Um, my role as Chief Sustainability Officer, I've been with Sustainable Blue since its inception, uh, fifteen years ago. So as you can imagine, in those early stages of our development, you get to do almost all the jobs because mm-hmm. there's nobody else around to do them. Uh, it's only the last three or four years that I've been calling myself the Chief Sustainability Officer. And that sort of was a natural progression of my interest as well as uh, things that I had been doing here at the farm. I'd say that sustainable loo is is aspirational in that we want to produce the most sustainable fish on the planet. And not only is the requirement, I guess, for aquatic protein, you know, growing because of population growth, but, you know, it's also the per capita consumption is also growing. So, we're going to need this seafood uh, supply, of course, to feed ourselves going forward. Now, I see land based aquaculture as a key component of that in supplying efficient and ecologically sound protein to this uh, population. So, in order to fulfill that objective, I say that fish farming has to resolve several issues, including threats of climate change, impact on aquatic environments impacts on local species, uh, sustainable feed ingredients, and to do this all the while without polluting or using up resources. So it's a big challenge, of course. We're all aware of these uh, these challenges in both land-based and uh, ocean-based fish farming. And I guess I see my role as helping Sustainable Blue try to achieve uh, their objectives in producing fish that can, uh, can do it in the face of these challenges.
1: Yeah, definitely. And it's a big role for sure because especially because your job description is in the company name. Um, So it really kind of puts the um, priority of sustainability in the forefront. So, yeah, because you said that, um, you know, you've been involved with the company since its inception, what have those conversations been like in terms of putting sustainability in the forefront?
0: Yeah, of course, initially, everybody's focused on just building the farm and trying to get fish out the door and making sure everything works. But I guess we started out as a with aspiration and objective of being a zero discharge from the get go. So our conversations evolved beyond that initial uh, engineering aspect to try and get to the point where we could have a farm that was operational at zero discharge and expanded to the point. I've been working in, in the aquaculture sector, I guess, now for about uh, 40 years. Before joining St. I was involved in. International aid work to countries around the world, both in aquaculture and fisheries development projects, um, both as an aquaculturist and environmental capacity. And through that work, I guess I gained a lot of exposure and experience and insight in perspective more than that in um, just the meaning, I guess, that aquaculture can have for uh, coastal communities, countries, regions of the world, both as an economic driver and a source of food security. And that's really. Uh, Initially, food security was very regional, but now we see it as a global uh, directive going forward. So I saw the opportunity early on to work with Sustainable Blue and their core technology um, as a viable, closed land-based system that could offer all those benefits that could come with that. So initially, when we started, our we thought our main competitive advantage was that we could grow a a warm water, let's say, a non-Indigenous species locally. So we started out growing Bronzino. Uh, European sea bass which is a warm water species here in Canada and as we started to interact with the marketplace uh, sure they said that's great we can get uh, bronzino locally now but they all really turned the uh, tables on us and said we think your you know biggest advantage is that your growing system the way you're producing your fish that we don't discharge we don't vaccinate and we don't use antibiotics and uh, that really resonated with their consumers and the question that everybody asked us after that was, can we grow uh, Atlantic salmon? So we turned our sights from salmon production and this led us, I guess, to where we evolved to today. So there's been an evolution of the of the farm over the years and all along we've been trying to uh, find the best use, I guess, for our technology, uh, but also concurrently as we evolve and become larger in scale, our overall impact on the environment uh, becomes uh, more prevalent and so we're faced with those challenges like everybody is and so we started turning our attentions to trying not just to be zero discharge but how do we deal with our waste products and so on and so forth the other questions that consumers were asking us earlier on and still do is what are we feeding our fish and what are we doing with our waste and of course these are both key issues for consumers but also for our long-term success of land-based and ocean fish farming. And I guess to provide answers to those questions, we needed to address them ourselves. So my background experience led me to pursue those answers uh, and look at the long-term sustainability of fish farming with respect to those and other challenges.
2: David, you talked a bit about some of the advantages that Sustainable Blue has and some of the aspirations. Um, Can you Mm -hmm. tell us what you think makes Sustainable Blue so
0: unique? Sure. Currently, uh, we're in... uh, unique position of being able to say we're a marine land-based fish farm with zero discharge. And that offers up a couple of other uh, benefits. We can be site independent uh, to a degree. I mean, we still have some requirements for certain site criteria, but it allows us to be flexible that way. It also allows us to have flexibility and choice of species that we grow as well. And that we're not tied to a coastal area. And we can also uh, quite effectively repurpose our our waste products uh, efficiently back into you know the bioeconomy, I guess going forward. So
2: the things that make you, yeah, most unique. So you know when you talk about uh, you know, in, you know, essentially siting independent of resources or geographic location, minus a few things on the on the site checklist on this podcast have often talked about how water efficient these farms can be and whether they're shrimp or they're salmon. Um, And and we talk about that in terms of, you know, liters of water used per kilogram of feed fed. And as a recovering aquaculture engineer, I guess, um, you know, that was uh, a metric that we used to talk to uh, commercial clients with about, um, you know, 300 liters per kilo or, 800 liters per kilo of feed fed. Um, I'm not sure if you can say what that measure is for sustainable blue.
0: Well, I'd say you know we've done our projections. I guess for a 5,000 ton farm uh, design, the minimum that we would look at would be in the order of around two to two and a half liters per kilo of feed. That's on technically on paper, but if in reality, you know, you'd expect that to be bumped up a little bit, but it's still. You know, in orders of magnitude lower than than most RAS systems
2: yeah I think um for the listeners if they download the 2022 ESG report from Atlantic sapphire they'll see they report um, 200 liters per kilo of feed fed and and I know from uh working with uh major salmon farmers around the world um that 300 liters per kilo of feed fed is a very common metric used for small post small ras uh, facilities um, if fresh water we are just concluding an experiment actually that uses membrane biological reactors to treat and recover um, any water that would leave um, the system and even then we're only around 30 liters per kilo of feed fed so Even that, with uh, what we would call zero exchange, is an order of magnitude greater than two and a half liters um, per kilo of feed fed, which is an an amazing and truly uh, unique thing about the farm. Um, I know that um, just getting the solids out of the system requires a certain amount of liters um Correct. per kilo of feed fed and, and um yeah so uh, another important consideration um is the energy that it takes to produce the fish and, and as i mentioned we've had some folks um in the past talk about various metrics including the energy use per kilogram of fish produced um Right. Oh, you know these things kind of vary. Um, I've seen very low numbers around 1.5 kilowatt hours per kilo of fish f- produced, and I think um, you can read some uh, reports from public companies where they're saying um, more like six or eight kilowatt hours per kilo of mm-hmm. fish produced. So of course, this is very site dependent, right? So, so if you're if you're raising a cold water fish or a warm water fish and a cold climate, you know I'm sure you're Branzino uh, energy uh, intensity was different than your salmon energy intensity because you're located in uh, a northern climate there in Halifax, but yeah. So, right. so, so, can you it all speak to kilowatt hours per kilo of fish produced for for the listeners?
0: Sure. I mean, it's a a key consideration uh, for us and something that we're as I guess most farms are constantly trying to become more efficient in their design and operation as well to to lower that number. Uh, from an environmental impact, but also just from a sheer cost, uh, direct line cost item. When we look at our projections for, say, a 5,000 tonne farm, we're uh, looking at probably around 6.9 kilowatt hours um, per kilo, which is, you know, maybe on the higher side. But um, we also have some projects in the works, you know, nothing's done until it's done, which would be able to lower that going forward. But, um, yeah, as yeah. you can imagine, taking that last half a percent of, <laughs> uh, of closing up that system takes additional energy, equipment, and so forth and process. Oh, which, yeah. Which all adds yeah. up, right? Yeah. yeah.
2: What's the What's the old uh, cliche, David? Uh, the last 10% takes 90% of the effort or something like yeah, that. Yeah, pretty so, much.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. You know, and... Uh, um, I worked on, or I guess I led the development of the BAP standard for recirculation aqua farms um, coming out soon. And when we did that, um, we essentially said, well, let's let's let the farmers report a baseline. And then um, instead of setting, setting a given metric saying you have to reach five kilowatt hours per kilo or six, what we did is we said, give us a baseline and then show year after year improvement on that. And so um, I think that um, is the the whole intent of some of those standards, which is to show continued improvement towards an ideal standard. And maybe at some point, you know, there there is a number in there three kilowatt hours. I don't know. Yeah. But, but yeah. Uh, you know what you mentioned about you know initiatives to uh, at Sustainable Blue to further improve that um, that's great to hear. So. Yeah. Um, what about uh salt water fresh water i i think i have this right i've been up the yeah. to, to the farm um i guess a couple times now and i think you guys are growing salmon in salty water uh, during yeah. the grow out phase is that Correct. right
0: that's right Yep, yeah. yeah, absolutely yeah. you know we have, we have a we bring eggs in uh monthly now from benchmark from iceland and they're brought in as would be normal into a standard freshwater hatchery operation uh-huh. and um, we grow them up to smolten and smolt them and then uh smolt introduce them into uh seawater from that point so the first 10 months let's say they're in the freshwater system and then from that point up to about two years they go into saltwater systems and we're located next to the next to the inlet here off the bay of funday and right. of course, we knew use that for filling our tanks. And initially, we did have some small discharge. We weren't, we were working toward the closing down the system, and um, and we also had some boreholes to supply our our hatchery. And was everything was quite small scale at that point. As we grew, of course, our wells, which were kind of poor in in quantity supply, but then started to sour over time as well. Uh, we realized that you know we weren't going to be able to keep drilling mm-hmm. boreholes to uh, to get the pressure we wanted. So we basically take our saltwater and use a saltwater reverse osmosis unit to split out the fresh water. It goes to the hatchery and then all of that freshwater waste uh, comes back and is reconstituted with the brine from the saltwater RO and reconstituted into seawater again. And the cycle just loops back onto itself. So we don't have a any need for extraction from, from the ground anymore.
2: Right. That's interesting. So um, I guess what I was um, also interested in is, and I think our listeners would be, is so your salt water is coming from where? Is it coming from an intake there in the Bay of Fundy, or do you have uh, brackish water wells that are, you know, infiltrating from the saltwater intrusion, or, or what's going on there?
0: Yeah, so um, you were right with the first assumption. So now our site is located next to an estuary and tidal inlet uh, off the Bay of Fundy and so as you know we get 12 meter tides twice a day so it's good, <laughs> good, good good flushing action there it goes right down to the mud and back up so yeah, yeah. isn't
2: that uh, isn't the bay of funny one of the the biggest tidal oh it is it's the highest yeah. in the
0: world yeah, yeah. i mean yeah, it's yeah. funny you see boats that are you know they're on their side on the bottom on the mud and mm-hmm. the top of the wharf is you know 30 40 feet higher than that and then 6 hours later they're you know parked beside the wharf kind of thing <laughs> so uh, but uh, so, yeah, we we uh, when we require salt water, we can we can uh, bring it in from that uh, inlet and uh, only at high tide, of course. Okay. A, such yeah, a, such a head, but um, basically you don't yeah. need makeup every day. So, yeah.
2: Yeah. So but that's and where do you it got, come from. Do you uh, take pains to disinfect that water with uh, some sort of uh, uh, disinfection process like? Absolutely. Uh, okay, yeah. So, so, so. yeah, we
0: always we always did. Uh, so. We, it's not a continuous cycle, so we can bring it in in a batch. And yep. we probably, uh we're set up now, we'll probably bring in eighty or ninety cubic meters that are at tide kind of thing on one cycle. Mm-hmm. And then that water course has all the good parts of the seawater, but all the things we don't want as well. Sure. Yeah. And so, yeah. So we uh, we basically oceanate that, aka generate a lot of bromine, and uh use that for disinfecting, um, basically killing the seawater, and then um, extracting out the bromine with activated carbon to uh, bring it back into a, you know, a clean state that's not harmful to any other biology. Yeah, yeah.
2: So, yeah. yeah, right, yeah. yeah, yeah. That's important. So uh, for our listeners, you know, when you ozonate seawater, it can create some toxic byproducts like um, hyperbromous acid, and and sure. those those can be removed as uh, as you guys are as you said, you're using car- activated carbon, so. You know, you, you, you sustainable blue has, has been in the news a little bit recently about potentially citing um, a farm or a facility in Washington State, and so that you know, makes me think about how you would, um, how would you uh, have salty water for your grow outs at an inlet site when you don't have, say, ready access to salt water. Have you guys uh, thought about what you would do there?
0: We have, yeah. And I guess, um, you know, we're looking at uh, a variety of sites in Washington presently, and I would uh, probably, with an educated guess, think that we probably will be upland, that we won't be on the coast. And so, um, yeah, we're looking at, we would basically just uh, take commercial salts and constitute the seawater from freshwater sources.
2: Yeah, so similar to similar to ideal fish, which is... Um... I'm not sure you would call them a zero discharge, but they they don't have a, an official discharge to any receiving water body, but they do minimize their their discharge and and make their own salts there. They have a neat uh, yeah. salt, a salty water um, production system. If you haven't if you haven't seen it,
0: Oh really, I,
2: no, I didn't. Oh yeah, it's it's kind of it's a you know it's part of um, the original construction design. It's a mm. it's a it's a, nice, it's a nice way, batch basis uh, multiple, uh, units doing it. So they have ready access as needed. And, um, you know, there are some unique things about making, uh, salty water from salts that you, uh, they have learned and others have learned, um, right. that you can't learn just saying, Oh, I'm going to throw the salt in and so cause that's what I would do. I was like, Oh, I'll just buy the yeah. bag of red, red sea salts. Right. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. So there's, I think there's some, uh, some yeah. issues with bridging and maintenance right. of equipment and and <laughs> best to do this. Yeah. yeah so anyways i, I it's uh yeah, yeah. It's in, it was interesting to see when i uh, visited ideal fish and you know i i have actually spent um quite a bit of time in washington state over my career um hmm. i worked with uh, the mid-columbia utility districts for over a decade um okay. on their on their water conservation measures for their mitigation uh fish hatchery requirements and so these oh, are yeah these are massive programs producing you know millions tens of millions of fish per per utility district and,
0: hmm.
2: and of course they were using um uh, primarily using groundwater but also sometimes pulling out of the columbia and And those resources are, are, um, you know, becoming more impacted by climate change every year, whether it's reduced snowpack up in the mountains or just, you know, or just a dry climate um, down in the valley. And um, Mm -hmm. so as as you guys look around sites, this is my completely unasked for advice. (laughs) Uh, I I strongly, uh, uh, you guys should strongly consider the, the Chelan County and Wenatchee area and and um and the reason why i say that is i once tried tried to cite with i was citing with a commercial farmer and uh, and we worked with uh the county and, and the various utility districts on siting there and yeah. uh ex- excellent groundwater availability just tremendous resources even though they they are slightly impacted nowadays uh, and the cost of power is close to the cost of the power production because it's all hydro right. so of course so, yeah. So, yeah nice so as you as you guys look for your you know improving your your carbon profile yep. um uh you know the hydropower there is uh, already built infrastructure so carbon is already is already set aside and then i think you know the cost them as i recall 1.7 uh, cents uh, us per kilowatt
0: Unreal. uh
2: to to produce <laughs> and then you know i think if you're a large user which yep. a ras farm is 24 yep. 7 you know sure. yeah
0: um
2: then you then you can negotiate a deal and um I'll just say in, in my uh, negotiations previously, you're, you're between two and three cents per kilowatt hour. Now, wow. that was then, and, and yeah. the thing, things change. Those are impacted by power contracts that are, are selling power to California and other areas of the country. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Um, as close as I, I would told, I told the farmer, I said, as close as you can get to one of these dams, the better, because the power <laughs> reliability is, is insane, right? The water is always running downhill. They can't stop the Columbia River.
0: Right running yeah yeah, right? yeah, so, yeah and so
2: they in the multiple turbines ones at least one is always running and so the yeah so i, I really like the um in fact we published a paper on this in terms of the uh, carbon footprint of sound production mm-hmm. and in our model um and the us was actually uh wenatchee based and so uh-huh. we were able to identify the life cycle assessment and carbon footprint associated with the power production profile there in the wenatchee valley and so anyways as you guys uh, talk with commissioner franz and other places yeah. i I make my un un uh, unasked for. There's a better word for that, but there's a better word, and <laughs> it in, 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 is, uh, is the Wenatchee Valley.
0: Well, Brian, we'll we'll take all the help we can get for sure. So, thanks very much for those <laughs> insights. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> well,
1: yeah definitely. Uh, thanks, Brian. And kind of jumping off of uh, your guys's conversation, though, it it really kind of. Um, inspired a curiosity about the case of profitability of being a sustainable company and sort of the push and pull between those two ideas. Uh, so David, I wanted to kind of get your insight on on that. and you you guys talked about, you know, the target metrics and feed and energy and all of these things and putting in these sustainability initiatives. Um, takes capital and, and it and it costs to build that into the design. So can you talk a little bit about that and how you found that balance for sustainable blue?
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, it's a constant uh, battle because engineers, we can, you know, we like to design everything and and don't worry about the cost, but somebody has to pay for it, of course. Um, and it has to be, you know, capital cost plays keyly into raising capital, but also profitability long-term. You know, trying to achieve that, that zero waste, I mean, our technical founder, Dr. Jeremy Lee, uh, he always believed that, you know, the key to unlocking the potential that grass farms, uh, offer, um, in production of, of seafood was to get to that zero discharge. And so he took the point of view from the, the fish's point of view from the aquatic environment that they're in, and then look at all, of course, the metabolites that they're producing whether they're CO2 or nitrogenous waste or solid waste, et cetera. And. To be zero discharge, we had to try and remove 100% of those metabolites and have the water restored to a distinct condition in a single RAS pass uh, without any residual that could build up over time. And if there was equipment available that was known and proven out there, sure, we would use that in the design, but if there there was equipment that wasn't available to achieve the uh, particular objective, And we had to set about uh, sort of inventing and designing and testing that. Excuse me. And that's the approach that Dr. Lee took to design a necessary process and the equipment, uh, whether it be off the shelf or bespoke equipment, that together could get that 100% removal result and allow for zero discharge. And so that's still the case today. And we do have our own fabrication this plastic dollar fabrication facility that we can make a piece of equipment if we have to and as far as the cost goes it's a balance trying to not just capital cost but operational cost because whatever we're designing you might need energy going into it and so forth and how we design it depends on how energy intensive it is and so on and, mm-hmm. you know pumping water whether you're going by gravity or you're pumping up a certain head or you're fluidizing things so on and so forth so all that factors into it, but. And we've had challenges a long way from and lots of design changes as you can imagine going from the last 15 years uh, and also operational changes because we'll design something and sort of the version 2.0 of our technology implement it at a larger scale and then uh realized that operationally it's you know labor intensive or it's hard to maintain and so forth so material choices etc going forward we started out at a hundred ton facility moved to a 300 ton facility And now we have a thousand ton capacity, which within that we've got a module, we call it, which is a, uh, in itself is probably adds about 650 metric tons. And that's the one that we think is the right balance between the engineering, the capital cost, and the production that we could scale and go forward with for our larger scale designs. Prior to this, we had gone from a uh, two tank, one treatment system, system, into a four-tank, four-treatment system, so that each tank had its own treatment system. And that gave us some uh, benefits with respect to biosecurity and temperature control and so forth. Uh, But to scale that up was just, you know, economically a non-starter because uh, just the pieces of equipment that you would need, the number of probes and so forth and pumps for each system, but also just maintenance becomes a nightmare. Uh, I remember probably 30 years ago reading an article that said, you know, regardless of your size of your firm, you should never have more than 10 of anything because you know if you've got you got 400 tanks, you've got 400 auction probes, you've got 400 things and and maintenance and, and operational cost just becomes too problematic. So it's taken us quite a while to sort of arrive at this particular module, but we think it's it's at the right scale and right cost going forward to allow us to uh, go for the larger scale of the, the 10,000 ton units.
1: Yeah, definitely, and it's definitely important for you to be able to break that down because the ambition of being a zero discharge operation, um, a lot of people are can be skeptical of the capital costs that re- that are required to build, mm-hmm. um, a truly sustainable um operation like Sustainable Blue wants to represent. As you mentioned, it's sort of an um an aspirational and to be this most sustainable operation or an example to be um this most sustainable fish producing company so yeah it, um, i think a lot of um investors maybe even are skeptical of this so i wonder what kind of conversations you had in terms of this is our ambition and this is the money that we require to achieve this decision um and how do you kind of get those Investors on board and have those open conversations about truly believing what your model will become.
0: It's a fairly straightforward, easy conversation to tote the benefits of being zero to discharge. And people who aren't from the fish farming sector don't realize or upfront, you know, the benefit that is. They just say, oh, this guy doesn't pollute as much or something or doesn't have waste going on into the ocean. That's That's good uh but as we have discussed it opens up a lot of other components um for site selection but also species selection and mm-hmm. uh, other environments. so we try and get that across and then those that do understand it but are skeptical of it you know we we get them out to the farm and the fact that we've been operating uh and selling fish for 15 years you know um does speak to the fact that we're at least still here and 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 we've yeah, uh, invested the invested the time and the money, and it and it's uh, wasn't just something that we thought about once and 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 here it is, we're trying it out. You know, we've we really lived it for the last fifteen years, and you know, have made a number of improvements. And the nature of our technical founder and ourselves and the company is that we just continue to keep making improvements going forward, just for either for efficiency or, or uh, ways to expand. The business and keep the capital costs and the operating costs lower as uh, everything else seems to go up in price. So it's really a, a change in mentality going forward. I mean, we're trying to not just look at fish farming, but uh, look at how we can become a, a truly integrated company from both our inputs and our outputs. Uh, we've done a number of life cycle assessments uh, on our farm. Uh, with ourselves and with some other companies that I can tell you about in a bit, in a few minutes if you want, and how land-based fish farming, in particular zero-waste land-based fish farming, can reduce its impact uh, not only just on the oceans, but on land as well, right, and become sort of that efficient protein producer uh, compared to almost every other form of protein that we can think of
1: yeah absolutely and i'm sure that's part of the reason why um you know someone like washington state commissioner hillary friends has been attracted to your facility you guys mentioned it uh, earlier with brian uh, about the potential of expanding or building an operation in washington washington Mm. state and i think just a few weeks ago the commissioner the washington commissioner visited your facility so can you tell us about what that visit was about and how it went
0: Oh, absolutely. We all want, you know, respect politicians who have integrity and will take a stand and make the correct decisions when they have to. Uh, but I also know that they're faced with some impossible choices sometimes that they can't satisfy all the people all the time. And so when Commissioner Franz chose to remove open water fish farming from the state's waters and to put a ban on future open water fish farming, she, of course, knew that it would be some pushback and it wouldn't be accepted by everybody. But, you know, it was the right choice to protect the coastal environments and the Pacific salmon species. And it was only after that decision that one of our representatives uh, who were associated with with an eco-funding group who actually is based in Washington approached the commissioner's office and spoke to Commissioner Franz to present sort of the attributes of a sustainable blue uh, farm and thus offer a solution to her for achieving both the economic growth in fish farming for the state and still being able to protect the natural capital of the state so uh based on that the interest was there and we started talking and of course uh she's and her delegation came up as you said about two weeks ago if it's okay with you i'll just elaborate a little bit on our association on Sustainable blue association with an other group of companies here in nova scotia we call the ecosystem and the work we're doing because it relates directly to our approach for our version of land-based fish farming in washington Okay. and the commissioner's visit but so in nova scotia we've got a couple other very innovative industry companies um that are involved also in efficient productions of proteins and through like-minded uh, individuals such as jim lol and others uh who are aware of us all they thought we'd be had some synergies together and so they got us in the same room we started talking and they were right so as we all know we're looking at uh industry is looking at alternative proteins and oils of course for uh fish meal replacement as the stocks are becoming harder to get and of course there's black soldier fly uh, as an insect alternative protein there's also algal production of proteins and fatty acids and so forth in fish feeds that we can look at so in nova scotia in fact in halifax itself there are both of these other companies uh that are quite innovative even in their own sector there's oberland agriscience which is a black soldier fly company here in Halifax, and Small Food Inc, which is an algal fermentation company growing a unique strain of algae uh, with incredible functional properties. Um, there's also another company that's in our group, and they're Sustained Technologies. Um, they're also Nova Scotia. They bring to the table a unique municipal waste remediation system. They can take all municipal solid waste and repurpose it back into other usable products by other processes turning it in plastics into diesels taking woody products into other components and so forth so there's nothing that leaves the plant and goes to the landfill and so it's quite incredible actually and the reason they're in the group is their organic waste can actually get repurposed back into a feedstock for the black soldier fly production and lastly there's a companies that are growing rice not in nova scotia <laughs> but in other parts of the world. And traditional uh, rice paddy uh, farm manager practices are to sometimes leave the paddies fallow for a period of time, and they flood them. And this process, uh, as these rice stocks decay, generates a lot of methane. But there are groups now that are introducing juvenile fish into these fallow rice fields to forage for a few months without any other inputs. The result is they are eliminating the methane production from the rice fields they're increasing organic fertilization of course and they get a harvest of fish biomass which can be then utilized in as an ingredient of course for fish feed and this practice is being commercialized by the work of the resource Renewal institute in california and plp group in argentina so that's a long way of saying that sustainable blue has been working with all of these companies to evaluate the combination of these ingredients as replacements for ocean-based fish meal, fish oil for salmon diets, uh, which are also suitable for uh, ras production in particular. And we're also very fortunate to have Dr. Stephanie Colombo, who's the Canada Research Chair of Aquaculture and Nutrition here in Nova Scotia. And Blue and other the other partner companies in the ecosystem uh, have over the past three years been undertaking feed trials with Dr. Colombo through Dalhousie University and her team to evaluate so these various alternative feed ingredients. We're going to be wrapping up the study this year. Um we plan to move towards more commercial trials in 2024, but the overall goal is to develop a suitable RAS diet that is ocean free, I guess is the best way to put that. Okay, um interesting. So yeah.
1: with these um with these collaborations with these other companies, is this something that um is important to Sustainable Blue and to the company in terms of looking for a new home for a new facility, potentially in Washington. Like, is it important to have to kind of surround the company with other partner companies? Is that part of the considerations of, you know, site location?
0: Yeah, absolutely. We're also looking at uh, combining our waste products as well. So,
1: mm.
0: you know, uh, the Soldier Fly has uh, Soldier Fly larvae. Coop or Mint frass, they call it. Much better word. We have uh, our sustainable biosolids, our fish manure, and uh, the sustain company has reclaimed cardboard. And we can we found by combining these products, not composting, just combining them, you know, and applying it to agriculture. We've seen a full replacement for inorganic fertilizers, recarbonization of soils, stabilization of pH, and increased water retention and pest resistance. So. We're continuing to work with that as well with these companies. And so, as you rightly surmise, there's a benefit to us being together because we can we can share these synergies. We can if we were in close proximity. And mm-hmm. so when Commissioner Friends and her delegation came to visit two weeks ago, it was she was part of a two- day ecosystem summit that was hosted by these companies here at Dalhousie and included presentations to her and others uh, in this in the fisheries conservation space uh, over these two days, and then tour tours to all the facilities. So, uh, of course, we had some conversations and dinners and stuff after that, and she saw the vision that we see that, sure, Sustainable Blue has many attributes that would be beneficial to the state, but collectively, so do these other companies, and as a group, we can actually become, you know, more efficient, more uh, integrated uh, by utilizing our own inputs and waste as well. So that is, I guess, the long-term uh, goal. You know, that when we're looking for sites, we are keeping that in mind. That you know, these other companies uh, would have benefit to the state as well, and they could co-locate with us if we go there. So,
1: for sure, and I'm I'm sure you've had tons of conversations with the commissioner Franz about, you know, what what do you feel is is she most interested about in terms of land-based RAS? Um, m- Maybe not even specifically sustainable blue, because Commissioner France, as you mentioned before, she has a huge decision before her in terms of the future of aquaculture in that state. So, um, yeah, I did. You get a sense of what she's most interested in and um, what she wanted to learn from that delegation.
0: Yeah, as we all know, Washington State has a long history of aquaculture and fisheries, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's well-suited for that state. They have lots of infrastructure and, and industries supporting it. And so we see RAS as an excellent uh, offering for the state. And her main her main objective in making those hard decisions was to, first and foremost, you know, conservation and protection of the coastal resources. And if it meant that she had no alternative which she didn't at the time, then she she was okay with that decision because she saw the long-term impact of of not making that decision. So, but ultimately she does want to support aquaculture uh, in the state. And when it comes to fish farming, we see the RAS offering a great alternative for that. And I think it's important to note that if you're gonna take, you know, X tens or hundreds of thousands of pounds from ocean-based fish farming and put it on land, whether it be Washington or any other and their state, I think the long-term viability of that is uh, tied to uh, being able to do something with those wastes. Because just discharging them back to the ocean again, you, you've you've got the fish out of the, uh, from out of the marine environment onto the land, and you've mitigated a lot of inherent risk and issues facing the ocean farming industry. But discharging directly back to the ocean, I would say, isn't a long-term solution that favors growth. Particularly if you consider you've paid for those nutrients that are now, you know, going back into an environment that, you know, could be detrimental long term. It'd be infinitely better to collect that and capture that and turn it into an economic and environmental win for the company. And that scenario, I think, fosters uh, long-term growth. And so I think the commissioner realizes that as well. She's excited about that. And but then concurrently, you need a separate industry that can utilize waste. To build alongside of any RAS industry that's being developed.
1: Yeah, that's super interesting. And um, I guess how important is it from the sustainable blue perspective to have government officials like Commissioner Franz be engaged and, you know, um interested in your own company's plans to build? Because we we do have other, you know, states where RASP projects are struggling to cooperate with their with their government bodies and mm-hmm. they're going through a lot of red tape. So yeah, how important is that relationship to be established with someone like Commissioner Friends?
0: Yeah, I think it's uh very important from that perspective, in that from a regulatory point of view, which is what the state would you know largely be uh responsible for, they can, by the nature of our, our business, the way we operate, the fact we're not discharging. Uh, which is where many of these, you know, pushbacks from regulatory agencies occur, and the fact that she's supportive of of the way we're doing it, and the fact that there are these other companies that could be involved as well, she sees that as a, you know, sort of a win-win for the state, and so she's supportive of it. And you know, we're not expecting uh, big favors or any financial favors or any of that thing, but it it does smooth the road, right, in that you know that uh, when you're applying for regulations permits, that there's a a favorable person on the other side that's in support of what you're asking for. Financially, it'll be the same as every other company coming to the state. You know, we are responsible for all our own uh, capital and everything else. Ultimately, we're looking at uh, uh, state-owned lands as a priority for siting a a facility. And lease payments that would go into that actually go back to... uh, fund the school system in the state because either lands that have been allocated to the school trust or their school trust. So she sees that as a win as well, right? So
1: Yeah, for sure. And from the other perspective of, you know, the the public, the community, um, Mm. I wanted to talk to you also about um, your take on Sustainable Blue and how um, and the consumers facing side of the company. So looking at the website, there were some key words that jumped out at me in terms of what um how the marketing t- strategy is being used on um i saw words like for example wild flavor and hormone free and antibiotics free and i i wanted you to kind of share with us some insights behind the marketing strategies there and what lessons have you learned in terms of how consumers respond to these messages
0: it's interesting because when you mentioned sustainability at the beginning when this last march at the Boston seafood show it you know it, regardless of the booth in which country it was, everybody had the word sustainability on their on their <laughs> banner, right? And so, yeah, it, it's certainly it's, top it's,
1: of mind for for everyone. It's
0: it's widespread, and it it starts to lose a little bit of focus when everybody can be sustainable. Some of these terms, I guess, they've derived out of you know just marketing companies, but we try and reflect, I guess, what our consumers are are discussing with us and. <laughs> All of those three, I'd say you know antibiotic-free is one that's best understood, resonates with consumers. Often, you see marketing strategies of key buyers that will side up with particular uh, NGOs and support groups like Ocean Wise and Friends of the Sea and so forth. And uh, you know we're quite selective uh, because we want to make sure that the agency that is representing in that that uh, endorsement uh, is in fact you know valid and and isn't with the pay for play kind of situation. But people ask us also can we go organic and we haven't and i'm not sure if we will just because uh my view and maybe it's only my view but when when people and consumers are asking is it organic they're if you canvass those consumers their perceptions of organically certified foods or responses relate to antibiotic free pesticide free natural environmentally sustainable these are often referenced in their responses so we're already offering the components that people offer, and I think that we can be we can go beyond what they expect out of organic as a company, and just to only get our messaging right to them in the fact that we're not discharging any waste back to the ocean. We're actually repurposing those back into the bioeconomy, and in fact, you know, we've done LCAs to show how we're reducing our CO two footprint to be a very low CO two producer from the feed ingredient we're also taking that off the table hopefully in the next little while and so these components you know go beyond organic certification and I think we can raise the bar to show that uh, we can produce fish in you know the friendliest way we can for the planet and I think that messaging once the consumers understand it will be uh, well received
1: that's truly fascinating. And I'm really grateful for you to take your time um, sharing all of your insights because Chief Sustainability Officer is quite a unique role, not just um, in RAS companies, but in companies in general. And it, it's always great to kind of share your insights in terms of not just the, the technical side and the operational side of the company, but also your perspective and, you know, what should sustainability mean to the end user, to the customer, right?
0: Sure. I'm. Uh... Happy you've had the opportunity to uh, wax on here.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much. I appreciate your time.
0: No, no, my pleasure. Anytime. Thanks, Gene. Thanks, Brian. Thank you.
1: All right. I hope you guys liked this episode. It was really interesting for me to really get inside, I guess, the intention and the insight behind someone like David Roberts, who's the chief sustainability officer and truly is going to be sort of the marker for the sustainability direction of Sustainable Blue. So it was good to kind of get his technical insight on it, but also the insight on, you know, the consumer-facing side. What did you think about our guest?
2: Yeah, I thought it was a great episode. David really shared a lot with us, Gene, and
1: yeah,
2: um, it was interesting to hear the intention, as you say, the of them being an aspirational type company, meaning that they really started from the beginning. this is what they were hoping to do and it's taken them, I don't know 10 or 15 years they've been doing this quite a bit um, to work through the you know species selection and the challenges on the technology and and they're finally at a, a spot where they think they have a module size, you know 650 tons with so many tanks that they can scale from. And a lot of times in our, on the podcast, we've heard from folks, you know, looking to build that, what is that module size and things like that, and worried mm-hmm. about uh, certain operational characteristics. And they are, too, the business side, as David said. But, um, you know, it seemed to me that the sustainability was forefront um, in the founder's mind and continues on today through David as the chief sustainability officer. And and then their in, incorporation or, or partnership with some of these um other companies that are circular economy based, essentially, um, there on uh, or in the Halifax area in Nova Scotia.
1: Yeah, for sure. I make a joke in the episode um, about how sustainable blue is in the name, but it, it truly does kind of force you as a company to be accountable to live up to your name, huh? So it's yeah, ab-
2: <laughs> it's absolutely, been- and and I think that you know they they they're there, or you know at least that uh, they appear to be there. I um mm-hmm. they he mentions that they've done some life cycle assessments and um you know it'd be great uh, if those are on the website i can check them out but mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I haven't seen them but um yeah I, I do think you know consumers are looking for those things that he mentioned and mm-hmm. um you know as, as you mentioned uh, earlier that climate change is striking urgency you know even uh, visible at Aquanor when you were there yeah. so so I think you know these things are coming to the forefront and Sustainable Blue has definitely been a leader in this area.
1: Yes, definitely. As always, show notes for this episode and all our episodes are available on our website with links to articles, photos and more extras. Go to rastechmagazine.com/podcast. That's r a s t e c h magazine.com/podcast. Please consider sharing this episode with your network and on social media and follow us on your favorite podcast platform so you don't miss a new episode. Thanks again to our sponsor, OxyGuard International, secure, grow, evolve, improve your production with tailored and targeted technology. Thanks again for listening.